0: Okay, so um, Neil uh, started his uh, career in, in healthcare, um, and he currently works for, for RGA, uh, I think more in the sort of group risk space. Um, you should have a look at him on the app, which I know you've all downloaded. Have a look at his profile. Uh, he describes himself, or he says he has been described as a, an actuary with Almost a, almost a personality, <laughs> um, so I don't think that's quite true, we went to university together and uh, I, think, I think that's uh, not a, a full reflection. Um, but yeah, I'm going to hand over to him, he left us hanging in his abstract, so we look forward to hearing uh, what, what he's going to t- talk to us about. <laughs> Thanks, Shivani. As long as you don't share the university stories, then we're all good. Um, So today, I'm here to talk to you about your friends. Your friends, especially the ones with benefits. So, you just heard um, the discussion about universal healthcare, and the reality is the world is faced with a global health crisis. And it's affecting the way we live and the way humans interact at every level. In my presentation today, I'm really going to cover three themes. One, the state of the world health, just to convince you that it really is a crisis. And then secondly, what we have, how we've responded and really how that's going. And lastly, sort of another angle that we've largely forgotten, something that explains why obesity is contagious, something that is as predictive as your smoking status and yet you don't see it anywhere on an insurance application form, something that may just help solve some of our problems. So let's kick off, then, with the state of world health. Our lifestyles really are killing us. Obesity has pretty much doubled since 1980 to 2014. And uh, about 13% of the world's population is currently obese. And that's 39% of our adult population being overweight. So that's 2 billion adults. It's quite a lot of extra weight that the Earth is carrying. Um, And in South Africa, you might think we're a third world country, it's not really our problem, but that's not true. In South Africa, 27% of adults are obese, not just overweight, but obese. So you can imagine the knock-on effect that has on our healthcare systems. In fact, obesity is becoming such the norm that a German beer company um, had, ran this advert campaign with men cradling their beer bops. uh, Their tagline was, brewed with love, uh, a clear play on pregnancy, the difference being, as my wife's gynae told me, uh, you don't lose the weight when the baby's born. So that's uh, sort of how we're eating. And then moving, we all know physical activity is key to, to our physical health. And uh, people like Usain Bolt over there can run and still have fun at the same time, unlike the rest of us. And for for those of you who are watching the Olympics, uh, certainly as I was, this is pretty much how my Olympic experience was, me sitting on the couch watching Usain run. And the reality is it's not just me. 42% of South African adults are physically inactive. That's almost half of our population just not getting around enough. Now, why is that important? Well, because physical activity is linked to our health. In fact, it's called the new smoking, so if you don't walk around, get active, you're likely to to have some problems. And all this sort of culminates into into things like this, cancer. Cancer, 13 different cancers are linked to physical inactivity, poor diet, and being overweight. It increases your risk for those cancers right the way through your body. In fact, they say that one in three cancer deaths are linked to being overweight. This stuff has a real impact on us, and it's not just cancer. There are other things as well, like diabetes. You talk about universal healthcare. In the UK, they spend something like 25,000 pounds per minute treating diabetes, and that's not even the secondary complications. Things like heart disease, strokes, and even joint problems, uh, being overweight has all these impacts. And the reason why this is an issue is not just because of the chronic disease or the healthcare cost, the reality is that it kills us. Heart disease is the global killer, it's the leading killer in the world and in South African stats it's pretty much second on the list. So that's the state of our health. We, we see that we're not eating properly, we're not really moving enough and how have we responded? Well the first thing we did as a society was we looked at what we were putting into our mouths, what are we getting into our bodies? And we realized very quickly that this thing called high fat diets wasn't so lacquer for us. So the marketing guys came out with cool things called low fat products, the idea being that if you eat less fat, you're just a whole lot healthier. Unfortunately, in 2006, um, Ben Wonsick uh, produced a study in the Journal of Marketing that showed that people who eat low-fat foods actually end up shifting their calorie intake upwards by 50%. The problem being that people see low-fat, they feel less guilty, and they actually end up consuming a whole lot more of it, misjudging how much the calories have actually come down compared to the fat. So that hasn't been that successful either. And then what else did we look at? Well. We know that uh, the banting craze hit South Africa, and with that, we learned that carbohydrates were very bad for us. So, uh, with uh, Tim Noakes, we gave bread the boot, and um, sugar was also found to be one of those evil substances. And countries really responded to sugar and are responding to sugar in many ways, one of them being sugar taxes. And as you know, we in South Africa are looking to introduce that in 2017. But Mexico was one of the first countries in 2014 that introduced a sugar tax of around 10% on sugary drinks. And it was really hailed as a success at first because consumption decreased. The problem was that consumption only resulted in in a calorie decrease of around one bite of an apple per day. So not really gonna make a big dent into the obesity epidemic. And news from earlier this year has shown that in fact, uh, the consumption is now increasing again, leading to calls for higher taxes on sugar. But the question is, is it really working? Or are we just sort of playing at the fringes of obesity trying to get it to work? And uh, for, for those of you who remember the newspapers, the Physicians Committee produced another paper uh, saying that bacon is killing us. It causes cancer. And they were right. So colorectal cancer goes up by 20%, 21% the risk of it, uh, as well as your bladder cancer, the risk of that goes up by 33% if you eat too much of the good bacon stuff. Uh, of course, people said that the risk of those cancers is so low that actually your overall cancer risk is not actually increasing that much. So you can continue to consume your bacon and, and not be too stressed about it. It's not really going to Change your overall risk and then the humble potato you really know that things are going pear-shaped when the potato is getting lined up for abuse in the newspaper it was linked to high blood pressure if you can believe it and when you thought things just couldn't get worse than that or worse than our rugby team at least uh, the UK researchers or or government experts so they called themselves said that red wine is not good for you uh, after many years of believing that it was this debate is still raging so, so don't think that it's concluded so what is the point of all of that? Well, the research on these things is really good, but often it conflicts with each other, and choosing a specific diet or a specific food group to abandon or exclude isn't necessarily going to solve the world's global obesity and health crisis. It may help, but it's not likely to be the whole answer. Fortunately, people think that there is a silver bullet, and that silver bullet looks something like this. Technology, and wearables in particular. So. CCS Insight researchers have said that they believe there are gonna be 400 million wearable devices bought in 2020. That's three times the number that have been sold in 2016 or estimated to be sold in 2016, including things like obviously these lovely watches, uh, jewelry as well, wearables. Did you know that clothes are being considered wearables these days, it's amazing. Effectively, all number of devices are, are coming out. And would it surprise you to know that the technology behind some of these wearables is not actually that new? Much of our physical activity is tracked in steps. You'll know the the reports that say we need to take 10,000 steps daily. Well, it all comes back to the humble pedometer. And where did the humble pedometer come from? Well, a man by the name of Leonardo da Vinci, who I'm sure you've heard about. Um, And... uh, He basically first designed this pedometer to to try and track Roman soldiers and how far they were walking every day. Perhaps they were trying to develop some sort of reward program, extra goblets of wine or something if you walk a certain distance. But be that as it may, it was Leonardo da Vinci. And he 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 had a lot of foresight. He designed helicopters and stuff way ahead of his time. And I'm sure if they restored Mona Lisa properly, you'd see there very clearly a little Apple watch on her arm. And because of that, I think I've solved the mystery of her enigmatic smile. We never knew what it was about, but now I do. You know that feeling when you open that first Apple product, the way the box swooshes open, the feel of the air, you can just sense Johnny Ives' design going into it? That's what that smile is about. And I've got proof. Look at Steve Jobs. Is that smile not the same? That smile is exactly the same. Unfortunately, that smile only lasts about six months, right? And these wearable devices often end up in drawers and are not getting used. In September 2016, not that long ago, a study was done where people took a group of of people trying to lose weight, split them randomly into two groups, gave one group a a wearable device uh, and told them to use it and encouraged them. And the second group, they just told them to track their activity online. After two years, they they checked in and saw the results of how much weight had actually been lost. And they found that the people on the wearable group actually lost less weight. They still lost some weight, but less than the normal group. And their conclusion was that wearable devices are not necessarily an advantage over traditional weight loss methods. And then worse news came just last month where another study was done and they again concluded that wearable devices don't make people healthier and they don't get people to do more activity. So does that mean that they're useless? Well, Eric Finkelstein, who was the lead author in that second study, doesn't say that they're useless. He just says you need to use them for what they are. Fitness trackers are equivalent to a bathroom scale. They're a measurement device, not an intervention device. You can't strap one of these onto somebody's arm and expect their behavior to just change. Uh, It's kind of like guys going to the gym. You buy all the equipment and then you expect somebody to go to the gym. It doesn't necessarily happen like that. And the problem with technology is it's so sexy that it distracts us perhaps from a real solution somewhere. And those distractions are real. As as an example, you can now get devices for your dogs that track their activity. And why do we need this? Well, apparently 54% of all dogs in the U.S. are obese. Um, So apparently there's a solution for that. And our plates are even getting smart. You can get smart plates now that have got little mini cameras and weight sensors that will tell you what you're eating. Isn't that a great invention? You know what you're eating. And uh, it records how many calories you get you're eating, so that goes somewhere electronically. We are tracking ourselves to absolute death here. Uh, the one smart plate that was on sale in the U.S. cost about 1,700 rand, uh, and I thought you guys would be pleased to know that it was microwave and dishwasher safe for that price. So might not want to have guests over, though. So Peter Thiel made this comment. He was an early investor in Facebook and a couple of other tech startups. We wanted flying cars, and instead we got 140 characters. Technology is great. It really is. It can solve many of our problems, but we can't rely on it to do everything for us. We can only expect so much from technology. So if our current solutions aren't working, are we perhaps missing something? Have we been blinded by all the sexiness of these things? And I say that we are. And that is vitamin F. Not the fatty acids, uh, but friends. You may th- think that sort of sounds a bit esoteric, a bit touchy-feely, wondering about my varsity days with Shivani, how things were, um, but different at UCT to how they are now. But the reality is, social connection has a huge impact on our physical and mental health. And I hope that the research that I've got today to show you will convince you that it really is a real effect Going back a few years ago, people thought that smoking was healthy. We thought that coke should be sold in pharmacies. And today, likewise, we're ignoring social connections. Your friends really do have benefits. So our journey on this starts in an orphanage in 1940, A person by the name of Rene Spitz did a a research, he had two groups, he had one that was in an orphanage, fairly isolated, not much social contact, and another group of children that was in a prison raised by their mother who was incarcerated for whatever crime she'd committed. And they compared the mortality and the health of these children over time, he tracked them over a reasonably lengthy period of time, and the results were quite startling. What they found was that one in three children in the orphanage uh, actually died. That's an incredible mortality rate, 33%. Meanwhile, in the jail, not one of those children died. In addition to that, cognitively, the children in jail performed much, much better. They grew physically better, while they're back at the orphanage, the children had cognitive and behavioral problems. This, this sort of research had been repeated quite recently as well, sort of showing that the results still hold. But what they really tried to emphasize and what they did demonstrate is that our social connection and isolation has a huge impact on both our physical and mental well-being. So, where does it take us? Well, there have been lots of studies since then, lots of studies showing many things. And in 2010, uh, what a group, uh, Timothy White and his group did is they did a meta-analysis of 100-odd-plus studies covering a number of people. And really, they, they tried to put together some statistics on saying, what does social connectedness mean for us? And this is what it does mean that people with strong social connections are 50% more likely to survive over any given period than people who are not socially connected. And that's a massive number. And then what they did is they broke the study down further and said, because that was all sort of social measurements. If we look at complex social measurements that give us more detailed insight into a person's uh, social abilities, how does that look? And what they found was was even more predictive. 91% increase in the probability that you'll live. That's massive. But to put that into context and really drive it home, they compared it to our traditional rating factors for mortality. BMI is less predictive than that. So in other words, what they're saying is it's better to have friends than be thin, essentially. Physical activity was another one that they compared it to. And again, it's less predictive than your social connections. And then lastly, they compared it to smoking. And they found that your social connectivity and a good social connection is equivalent to quitting a smoking habit of a pack of cigarettes a day. That's massive. That really is massive and that's how predictive it is. And then a study in 2006 by the University of California looked at 3,000 women with breast cancer and they wanted to see how the survival rates compared between women with different sort of social networks. And what they found is that women with larger social networks were four times as likely to survive compared to women with small networks. So these again are big numbers and big differences we're seeing. So now that we've seen that friends do actually have benefits and some serious benefits as well, you may be wondering why they have benefits. And to understand that we need to look at the brain. Evolutionary theorists believe that our brain grew so big once we started to live in groups and our brain had to evolve to handle all the social connections and know who was connected to who and what and why. It's interesting because our brains are really inefficient. They use 20% of our energy while being only about 2% of our body weight. And why would evolution do that for us? Well, evolution would do that for us because it's safe to be in groups. It's safe to have social connections, it protects us. And um, the reality is we evolved to be social creatures because of that. Now, for those of you with 400-odd Facebook friends, I have a bit of a story for you because Robin Dunbar says, he's an evolutionary theorist, that you can have a maximum of 150 friends, social connections, that's the limit for humans. So you may have to unfriend some people on Facebook later. And why is that? The reason for that is because the way our brain evolved was that was sort of the maximum we reached. And it's not just about knowing somebody's name, it's about knowing somebody and where they fit into the social network and how they can help you and protect you uh, from from an evolutionary perspective. And if we look back in history, 150 is around about the number that we see villages and sort of clans developing around the world throughout evolution. And that's important for us because the world no longer looks like a 150-person village, and that's starting to affect us socially. In addition, he said that social connectedness or emotional uh, closeness to somebody declines at a rate of 15% per annum in the absence of face-to-face contact, not online, face-to-face contact. And that's huge. So it has a big implication for our personal relationships, how often are we seeing somebody, and even as businesses, how do we engage our customers? Are we seeing them that often? Are we contacting them that often? Because if not... In five years, you can go from being a close friend, an intimate friend, to somebody who's really at the outer layer of acquaintances. And again, that has huge implications for the way we interact with people. So why is that? Well, we have evolved so that it's embedded in who we are. Our bodies reward us for being socially connected. Things like touch, we release endorphins when we touched. And endorphins are kind of like our own opium source. We get a bit of a drug high when we're with friends. Laughter, it does the same thing. And we know there's these other feel-good chemicals like oxytocin. You'll be well-known with breastfeeding moms how those chemicals encourage people to have that physical contact. And even speech is seen as grooming at a distance. It really does make a difference being with people just from a chemical perspective, helping our immune system and helping healing. Um, and what we also know about friends is that they provide us with support actual concrete support, so maybe sort of financial or with advice, things like that, but also emotional support. And that support is really a key. Of course, relationships can be negative as well. And some research has shown that if one of your mutual friends becomes obese, you are three times as likely to become obese as well. So obesity really is contagious. And we, we need to manage those networks and those social relationships. So what does a, a state of our social wellness look like? It kind of looks like this. There's over 7 billion of us on this planet. Density of people per square kilometer has trebled in the last 60 years. There's so many people around. We're online, we're hyper-connected. And yet, it feels like this. A numberless multitude of people. No one is close. No one was distant. It really resonates. And if we look at the stats, in 1985, 8% of American adults said that they didn't have anybody to talk to. They were lonely. This number has increased and they put it at around 23% of American adults. 23% of people say they don't have somebody to talk to, and yet we connect it to everybody. How is that possible? Social media. It should be helping, is it? Well, it does help if you have an offline relationship as well, but it doesn't just help because a lot of social media is about voyeurism, checking out your ex-girlfriend or boyfriend who they're with now, consuming a lot of content, video, it's kind of replaced TV in a way. So yes, it's an interesting space to watch, but it may not help us as much as we would hope it to. And that desire for contact is, is very visible with things like this, snuggle buddies, you can actually pay people to come and cuddle you, and or platonic of course. Um, And things like Spooner is an app you can download, feel free to try it yourself. It's like the Uber of cuddles. You click cuddle and somebody comes and cuddles you. It's it's fantastic. Somebody did suggest we could consider it for the actuarial app next year, Rizan. I I don't know. Um, I didn't think it would really work. And in China, there was a kindergarten that was charging parents 200 rand a month, equivalently, for hugs for their children. So when did we start commercializing uh, something as simple as a hug? So what? So this brings me to, to my last, last few slides. And, and really, why, why does this matter to us? Well, from a societal point of view, we're talking about universal health coverage, we're worrying about how things are, how healthy people are. And the thing is, this stuff matters. It drives our mortality, it drives our health. So when we're looking at our whole social system, our whole health system, we cannot ignore social connection. And that fabric is broken to a large degree. We need to start renting it, building communities, whether it's through sports, hiking groups, clubs, and even support for people in poor and abusive relationships. That stuff makes a big difference, and we cannot simply ignore it. Underwriting. On the insurance side, we do so much on the underwriting side. We draw blood, take urine, we look at genetic testing, and yet there's something simple as a social questionnaire that is as predictive as your smoking status. Why aren't we using this stuff? We can. Obviously, we need to be careful, and there was a company recently in the UK that used Facebook profiles and got into a whole lot of trouble, so we need to be responsible with it and professional with it. But there's a lot of opportunity, especially if we're trying to go online with our, our quotes and our business. And then lastly, wellness. We've got such great wellness programs in South Africa, from corporates to insurers to medical schemes. But they don't necessarily have as big a social component as they could have. So how do we expand that and include things? And some of it might be as simple as, as expanding what we currently have to include a social element, but are there other ways we can be innovative and creative to include social connection as something that's embedded in our social programs? Whether it be walking with a buddy counts for more than just walking on your own. And then lastly, maybe in the future, our wearable devices won't just measure physical steps, but social steps as well. And maybe we even need our wearable devices just to beep and remind us that it's time to hug and give somebody a little bit of a cuddle. So may I suggest at the end of this session, at the break, you turn off your screens, you talk to the actuary next door to you, and you look at your friends with a renewed appreciation for the benefits that they really do give you. Thank you. Thank you, Neil, uh, for a very entertaining and informative presentation. Um, so we don't have much time, we've got about five minutes, uh, so maybe one or two questions. Okay, we've got a um, hand over there. Thanks so much, uh, really great talk. Just a quick question, on that mortality investigation, how did you define someone to be socially connected um, and how did you define someone to be friends, because obviously you've got Facebook friends, uh, personal interaction friends. That's a good question. So with that meta-analysis, it was about 140 studies that they looked at, and each study would have had its own measure. Uh, And some were simple, I mean, binary, are you married or do you live alone? but then they are actual scales. So from a social perspective, there are things like official loneliness scales and ways to measure your social connectionness and they would have used those. Um, so if you, if you look at it online, the universities actually have these scales that they use. It's much like um, your personality tests. So uh, Myers-Briggs and things like that, they actually have developed these social, social tests. Not that we would use it in insurance or in the financial world, but from a social perspective, they do actually use those. Uh, and, and the loneliness index is a very well-known one that they do often quite, quite often use in studies. And in that meta-analysis, they used a combination of those different studies, which is why when they used the more complex ones that took, to, took into more detail, it found that sort of 91% increase in likelihood of surviving. Uh, Thanks, Neil.